Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Terrell Fund, supporting reimagined childcare. Johnson & Johnson. University Hospital. One goal, one passion. Every patient, every time. NJM Insurance Group, serving New Jersey's drivers, homeowners, and business owners for more than 100 years. Bank of America. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, moving the region through air, land, rail, and sea. New Jersey Sharing Network. The New Jersey Economic Development Authority. And by New Jersey's Clean Energy Program, lighting the way to a clean energy future. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. And by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. Hi everyone, I'm Steve Adubato. We are pleased to welcome from the city of brotherly love, uh, Bill Spruill, who is the Executive Secretary Treasurer, Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters. Now, now, Bill, first of all, welcome, Bill. Thank you, Steve. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. Uh, you're at a particular museum. Describe it. Okay, this is a museum here on Spring Garden Street in Philadelphia that has artifacts from the Carpenters Union dating back to the inception, which was actually August 12th in 1881. And uh, I'm actually sitting in front of some artifacts on back of me is a trunk. I don't know if you can see it, but it belonged to Peter J. McGuire, who was the founder of the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America. He was also the co-founder of the American Federation of Labor, and he's also one of the folks that's responsible for creating Labor Day and the eight-hour workday. So an amazing labor leader, and it just so happens that uh, he, he organized and created the organization that I belong to today. You know, uh, Peter McGuire, uh, 1881, the creation of, uh, the, what was the original name, by the way? Bill? United Brother, well, it still is the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America. Got it. And, and Mr. McGuire is part of our Remember Them series I do with my colleague, Jackie Chicarico. Let me ask you this before we move on to some other issues. I just want to help people understand. Peter McGuire is important for so many reasons. Go back to the Labor Day issue, which I believe was in 1894 that he proposed. Like people go, hey, where the heck did Labor Day come from? That's McGuire. Well, there's, there's a lot of information and, and a lot of disputes out there as to who may have actually been the, the founder of Labor Day and the creator of Labor Day. But it was actually President Cleveland that uh, made it more. Grover Cleveland? Grover Cleveland. But uh, what I understand after doing some research was in 1882 at a convention for the American Federation of Labor, which is the AFL part of the AFL-CIO, Peter McGuire proposed that there's a, a day where there's parades and, and rallies and things of that nature for all working people uh, throughout the United States of America. And that's the date of the actual first Labor Day parade. Uh, the date it became an official holiday was after uh, President Cleveland enacted it as a law, as a, as a holiday, as a national holiday. 
So eight-hour workday, uh, really important. Wages doubled during that time. By 1903, North American uh, Carpenters Union of Carpenters had grown to 167 members. They started with just a, a few thousand, now over 500,000 members strong. So again, we, we recognize and honor Peter McGuire. Uh, and and P.S., inducted into the Hall of Fame, I think it was 2014, in, in collaboration with the Hall of Fame. Uh, that is Peter McGuire. Hey, uh, let's shift gears, Phil. Let's shift gears. You've talked to a lot of uh, to us offline, and you've talked about this publicly about tax fraud. What from Peter McGuire to tax fraud? I wonder what he would have said about tax fraud. What is the tax fraud issue, a, and what the heck needs to be done from a policy point of view to address it? Well, you know, Steve, let me start by just mentioning McGuire again because some of the things he fought for are actually some of the things that are happening today in the construction industry. Uh, during the 1870s and the 1880s, uh, there was a lot of open shop stuff. Uh, workers had to work 12-hour days. Uh, there was what's called piecework, which happens in the industry today with a lot of unscrupulous practices. So what happened uh, recently, we've been advocating to try to change the industry because there's a cancer in the construction industry, and that is tax fraud and unscrupulous contractors. Well, just this spring, Berkeley University put out a study, and it's pretty alarming. And, and it's the most alarming study that I've ever seen to date in my entire career. Within this study, they determined that 39% of the construction workers in the United States are below the poverty level. And this includes construction workers that work off the books because they have no documentation of any income. But that same 39% of construction workers also rely on certain social safety net programs to help supplement their income. And on a national level, it was determined that this is around $28 billion. In New Jersey alone, they determined that 33% of the construction workers in the state of New Jersey are part of this group. And that costs the state for the social safety net programs that they utilize around $325 million on an annual basis. But Bill, help people understand who say, well, I'm not in the Carpenters Union. P.S., the Carpenters Union, an underwriter of our public policy programming to, to, to make that clear. People who say, hey, wait a minute, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm not, I'm not a carpenter. I'm not in the union. Talk to them. What does it mean? What's the impact? This practice affects everybody because it doesn't only happen in the construction industry, it happens in other industries. Um, it's almost like a, a giant gig economy, if you will, where contractors are doing large seven-figure contracts out there now. And this used to be isolated to the residential world and smaller projects and home building and things of that nature. But now we're seeing mid-rises and high-rises being built with 100 workers being paid off the books companies dodging the internal revenue folks and not- So they're just in, not paying taxes. Not paying into unemployment, not paying- well, how, does the, how does the IRS just say, I don't know what they're doing or not doing. Is this a top priority for the IRS? I, I would hope so. Uh, under the current administration, we've seen a lot of activity and Governor Murphy's administration has been doing a great job out there trying to correct this issue because the states lose a lot of money. Uh, you know, any local, county, state, you know, this is a domino effect. And every single taxpayer in New Jersey and in America should be concerned about this because it may not be the industry where they make their living, 
but the members of the carpenters union and other trade unions are under siege right now and our way of life could change in the next decade if if this doesn't uh have if they don't come up with a way to correct this issue Bill, hold on one second i want to be clear we got about a minute left are you saying other taxpayers those of us who pay our taxes as the law says we should based on our income do we pay more because others are being paid off the books by these contractors? Absolutely. Workmen's compensation costs for legitimate companies are, are higher than normal because of people that don't carry proper insurance. Our medical insurance is higher because of uninsured people that have to go into the hospitals after having construction industry accidents. So it's, it's really a bad problem. And the Berkeley study, I would advise anybody that is interested in this subject to take a look at it because it's very sobering. Hey, Bill, thanks so much, my friend. Best to you and everyone. And Bill is coming to us from the Carpenters Museum in Philadelphia, a um, whole range of issues. And also we honor Peter McGuire, 1881, the Carpenters. Hey, Bill, all the best, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Great talking to you. Take care now. You got it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato. New Jersey's early educators and childcare providers are more than twice as likely to live below the poverty line versus the general workforce. If we want our children to be successful, we need to increase the investment in the people who care for them. It is time to build back better by reimagining the way we support these essential providers. Learn more about the Reimagine Childcare campaign by visiting the website at reimaginechildcare.org. With NJM, drivers could save up to 25% on their auto insurance. Hey guys, just wondering if you've changed your mind on the whole no mascot thing. You know, because if you are interested, you should really say something because uh, I got a few gigs in the works. So, you know, I might not be available. Hello? <laughs> hey, what's Some the insurance companies are known for their mascots. Oh, hi, Carl. Hey. NJM is known for what matters. Thank you. Outstanding service you can count on. Where'd you even get this? I know a guy. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM, get a quote today. We're now joined by Dr. Taryn Morrissey, professor at the School of Public Affairs at American University. Good to see you, Dr. Morrissey. Thanks so much for having me. You got it. This is part of a, a, an ongoing series of programs we're doing around childcare yeah, as part of our Reimagine Childcare initiative. You'll see the website up. A report that was done, you're the co-author of a report released late in 2021 called Pennies to the Dollar, the Investment Gap for New Jersey's Earliest Learners. Key findings include? Well, thank you. Yes, as my collaborator, A.J. Chaudhry, and I um, detail in the report, New Jersey spends about $680 per year in state and federal funds in education and care for each child under age three, so infants and toddlers. And this is in 2019. So $680 per child. Compare this to about 22000 
per child aged 5 to 18, right, in K through 12 education, and about 8,000 per child in um, age 3 to 4. And New Jersey has really strong K through 12 schools and an evidence-based preschool program, but there's no universal system or really anything like it for infants and toddlers. Okay, I want to follow up on this. But you also in the report talk extensively about the child care workforce, uh, wages, turnover. They're just not getting paid. Those in, professionals in child care um, organizations just aren't getting paid enough. Is that a big, the biggest part of the reason why we're losing those folks and there's so much turnover, doctor? I think so. I mean, for um, in May of 2021, the median wage for childcare workers in New Jersey was about $14 an hour. And anybody living in the state or nearby knows the, how expensive it is. Um, but And nationally, it's $13 per hour. It's simply um, often not enough to live. About half of childcare workers are eligible for or receiving public assistance because they earn so little. We know nationally only about 16% or 16%, excuse me, of childcare workers lack health insurance. And it leads to staff turnover, as you were saying, which is a big problem for young children who are trying to build relationships with their adult caregivers and parents who need reliable childcare to work. Not to mention keeping those childcare centers open if they don't have enough professionals to work there. That's exactly right. The low compensation makes recruiting and retaining a skilled workforce really difficult. And many programs have empty classrooms that they can't staff. And meanwhile, parents are struggling to find and afford childcare. Um, Taryn, talk a little bit about the economic impact. Some people might say, oh, yeah, I think uh, we should have better childcare. That would be nice if it was more accessible and affordable and good quality. But it's not an economic issue. It absolutely is an economic issue. Talk about it. It absolutely is an economic issue and in three ways. I mean, one, at the very basic level, childcare allows parents to work. I, mean, yeah. I have two children ages five and eight and they're currently at summer camp is allowing me to work. Um, Second, childcare is in a vital employment sector in its own right. We were just talking about the childcare workforce. Now it's, it's arguably too low compensated. We need to increase compensation, but it employs millions of people across the, the country and, and allows other people to work. And then finally, high quality settings promote the workforce of the future. We know that um, developmentally appropriate, high-quality uh, settings, um, curricula, interactions with adults promote children's short and long-term educational and economic outcomes. Let's talk about federal dollars here. So um, a lot of federal money, billions and billions of dollars, federal money connected to COVID relief. How, to what degree have those dollars, particularly with the American Rescue Plan, to what degree did those dollars, have those dollars gone toward the child care crisis? Billions of dollars have been invested in the, in the child care crisis, and it's necessary. I mean, these problems have preexisted the pandemic, but the pandemic has exacerbated families' struggles in, in finding and, and affording child care and in child care programs struggling to stay open. The economics of child care are difficult in that the, uh, the quality depends on the um, interaction between the adult and the child, and that requires small child to adult ratios, which means that labor is a big expense. Um, now, 
we know that compensation is low, right? Because parents are paying as much or more than they can afford. Um, and it makes childcare profit margins really, really small. And so you throw in a crisis like the pandemic when, pu when public health measures are expensive, when enrollment goes down, and childcare programs have a really hard time staying open. So those federal relief dollars were essential to keeping the childcare sector going and to keeping the economy going. Much of our, our workforce are, are parents who, who need this childcare to work, especially with, with, when schools are closed, but this continues. Um, so those relief dollars were essential for paying rent, paying um, utilities, and paying personnel and allowing programs to, to reopen or stay open. Okay, so let's go through this, the findings of the study. And, and P.S., if we put up the website uh, at American University, more specifically, uh, the School of Public Affairs, is, is the report accessible to people? Yes, the report is accessible actually to um, ACNJ's website, the Advocates for Children of New Jersey website. So, so let, me, let me try this. So if we're talking about substantive, specific policy changes that need to be made, to have a stable, stronger childcare system, paying workers more, providing more direct subsidies to parents of children, particularly those who qualify from an economic perspective, and what else? Give me a couple of other policy actions, policy um, decisions that need to be made and move forward on and implemented, please. Those are the big ones. I mean, expanding childcare assistance to families across the income spectrum up to moderate income families would do a lot to help is families it, afford. Sorry, child. doctor, is it too low right now? Is the threshold too low right now? It is, and I know there's, there's um, well, right now it's up to about 85% of state median income, but only 18% of eligible infants and toddlers right now in New Jersey actually receive help, so receive subsidies. That's it, We're 18%. Not even, that's 4% of New Jersey's infants and toddlers. So we're not even serving the children who are eligible and we need to raise that eligibility. I know there's proposals in, in New Jersey being debated up to 300% of the federal poverty level, That's for right. example. The, the quality really rests on that interaction and that warmth and responsiveness between caregivers and teachers and children. And so we know that children's outcomes flourish, you know, in the, in the short term and the long term when we have that quality. And providers need to, need to be compensated fairly for their education and their experience. And so rewarding individuals for getting more credentials, uh, for experience, and, and preventing them from moving to the K through 12 sector or the preschool sector where they will get paid more. To what degree do you believe that a significant number of policymakers in elective and appointed office, particularly those who are men, are getting this, understanding it, and acting on it? I know it's a loaded question, 30 seconds or less. <laughs> uh, I'm not a political scientist. I'm a developmental psychologist. But I will say, just from my 20 years in the field, that I do see people understanding the field more. I see my college students, male and female alike, understanding and getting excited about child and family policy and recognizing that the economy is simply not going to sustain itself with this, with a workforce that can't get to work and stay at work. Um, and we need to provide fair jobs for the disproportionate, um, for the workforce and childcare that's dis disproportionately female and disproportionately women of color. Um, and we need to set our, our children up for future success. So we've, we've made strides, but we, we still have a lot of work to do in supporting the youngest among us. 
Well said, and that is why we're involved in a public awareness campaign called Reimagine Childcare. Dr. Taryn Morrissey, professor at the School of Public Affairs at American University. Thank you so much, doctor. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You got it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. New Jersey's early educators and childcare providers are more than twice as likely to live below the poverty line versus the general workforce. If we want our children to be successful, we need to increase the investment in the people who care for them. It is time to build back better by reimagining the way we support these essential providers. Learn more about the Reimagine Childcare campaign by visiting the website at reimaginechildcare.org. Today's forecast is brought to you by. We are the tippy top words of insurance. We are the tippy top words of insurance. We are the tippy top words of insurance. We are. Some insurance companies are known for their jingles. Top insurance, please hold. NJM is known for what matters. Outstanding service you can actually count on. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM, get a quote today. We're now joined by James Horn, who is the president of Junior Achievement in the state of New Jersey. Good to see you, Jim. Good to be here. Let everybody know as we put up the website for Junior Achievement what it is and why it's such an important organization. Sure. So Junior Achievement tries to provide young people with financial literacy skills uh, and, and skills to really prepare them to move into adulthood. Uh, so in New Jersey, we have a couple of programs that we offer here in our site in Edison, our capstone facility. Uh, we have our, our BizTown and Finance Park. Uh, BizTown is really more designed for the high school students. Uh, Finance Park provides services to the five to eighth grade students. Uh, we also do programs in schools uh, with the same model uh, in mind to provide financial literacy uh, information uh, to students throughout New Jersey. So first of all, on my end, Jim, I apologize. I was remiss. Congratulations. You are a new president as we speak. Uh, three, three weeks in, Steve. Three weeks in. Impressive. Uh, good stuff. L let's talk a little bit more about uh, not only the programmatic piece of this, but my interaction with Junior Achievement over the years is always, I've always been fascinated by the financial literacy part of it. Explain to folks, Jim, why the financial literacy piece is so important to the development of young people. Well, I think a lot of times we take it for granted that young people understand how to manage money and how to manage their finances. Um, and what we find is that uh, young people that don't have that experience, number one, and then they make significant mistakes in their life, you know, run up credit cards, go into debt, get bad credit, uh, which impacts their lives as they move through adulthood uh, for a substantial period of time. So financial literacy is really critical uh, with helping young people understand how to manage the funds that they have, how to make choices on what to, what's to spend that's a necessity versus a want, uh, and really, uh, again, preparing them to ensure that they've got the resources to support themselves and their families as they as they move into adulthood. You know, I'm curious, financial literacy, 
the economics of an organization, particularly a not-for-profit like yours, like ours, like any uh, not-for-profit, including the world of public broadcasting. All of us affected, impacted by COVID. What has been the greatest impact of COVID two and a half years plus into this pandemic on junior achievement? Well, I think we're still experiencing, and this is a great example of that, our, our ability to provide services in person was limited, uh, which also reduced our ability to have mentors in front of young people so they could see and interact with role models, uh, not only to get the financial literacy training, uh, but to have some face-to-face -face time with someone who's, who's walked their walk and been in their pathway. Uh, and we've been you know, kind of moved to the virtual environment. Although I want to say and applaud Junior Achievement of New Jersey for making that shift and continuing to serve students, we realize that that interaction, that face-to-face -face interaction uh, is very valuable for young people. Mm. And the other piece of this, Jim, is that you, what, what town did you grow up in? Uh, actually, I'm not from uh, New Jersey. I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, and, you know, the interesting thing about that for me is I was a junior achievement exactly. student. That's where I was going, Jim. Yeah. So how did you even connect with junior achievement as a kid growing up? Well, you know, my mom, uh, I, you know, I was uh, raised by a, a single parent. My dad, my dad died when he was, when I was young, uh, 10 years old. And mom realized that she needed to get me and, and my other brothers into activities to keep us safe and off the street while she had to go to work. And so uh, in addition to the Boys and Girls Clubs, the Ys, you know, when it came time for high school, uh, here was junior achievement. So it was, a, you know, an extracurricular activity in the evening uh, that was providing me with some information, how to manage a business, you know, what the different components of running a business were. Uh, and, and really also, again, that, that mentor uh, in your life at, at a young age so that you could have a conversation, you have a, a problem. It was, it was really instrumental for me uh, personally, uh, which is why when I got the call from uh, the search firm, uh, it really piqued my interest uh, to, to explore this opportunity. The issue of college, college affordability, accessibility, all those issues matter, but the question of <clears throat> the value of a higher education is continually talked about, more so, I believe now, with the advent of COVID, for a lot of reasons. What do you believe, as the leader of Junior Achievement in the state, and understanding Junior Achievement, what is the message of Junior Achievement as it relates to college? Well, I, I think the, the one thing that we have to realize, and particularly in this day and time, uh, due to the cost of uh, higher education and other factors, that one size doesn't fit all. I mean, junior achievement's real objective is to pre prepare young people for the, the jobs that will be available in the future. Uh, we have an aging workforce, as, as you and I both know, uh, and there are some, some jobs that pay you know, very well uh, that don't require a college education, but they do require credentialing. Not to say that a young person that wants to move on to higher education should be dissuaded from that, uh, but we also want to understand that there are other opportunities for young people and, and our labor force needs young people to think about other pathways beyond just the traditional college for your college track. Well said, before I let you go, volunteers, a big part of <clears throat> junior achievement, excuse me, is about volunteers. What do, the, what do you need volunteers for? Our volunteers are, are instrumental to the work that we do. We actually train them to deliver the curriculum, 
Um, and, you know, what that does for us, it reduces our costs, obviously. So if we've got volunteers from different companies that come and participate, go through our training modules, they can deliver the services to the students both here in Edison and, and Camden uh, and, and the high school there. So it, it's really critical for us to have volunteers that are committed. Uh, when I say committed, that are going to show up when they say they're going to show up that can deliver the curriculum and also that are caring adults. So there, it's a, a real important element of the work that we do. Jim Horn is the uh, president as of three weeks ago, as we do this program of junior achievement in the state of New Jersey. And uh, we were fortunate to have him from Connecticut originally. Hey, Jim, all the best to you and the team at Junior Achievement. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Steve. I'm Steve Adubato. That's the president of Junior Achievement, Jim Horn. We'll see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined childcare. Johnson & Johnson, University Hospital, NJM Insurance Group, Bank of America, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, New Jersey Sharing Network, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, and by New Jersey's Clean Energy Program. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network, and by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. New Jersey's early educators and childcare providers are more than twice as likely to live below the poverty line versus the general workforce. If we want our children to be successful, we need to increase the investment in the people who care for them. It is time to build back better by reimagining the way we support these essential providers. Learn more about the Reimagine Childcare campaign by visiting the website at reimaginechildcare.org. With NJM, drivers could save up to 25% on their auto insurance. Hey guys, just wondering if you've changed your mind on the whole no mascot thing. You know, because if you are interested, you should really say something because uh, I got a few gigs in the works. So, uh, you know, I might not be available. Hello, and <laughs> hey, what's Some the? insurance companies are known for their mascots. Oh, hi, Carl. Hey. NJM is known for what matters. Thank you. Outstanding service you can count on. Where'd you even get this? I know a guy. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. NJM, get a quote today.